Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Going Up Cast, your weekly feel-good podcast. For this week, we begin some spooky stories for the month of October. I talk about an HBO show, and we talk about the latest season of Some Fancy Bakers. That's right, this week we talk about Lovecraft Country on HBO that you can that you can see right right now, in fact. Um, I watched the first couple of episodes and I was very, very sleepy during that review, so you you get like a you get like the first taste of a, of what I think of that show. And then a fucking new great British baking show began. A brand new season of that is now on Netflix and I watched the first episode and I'm gonna keep keep up with that over the next couple of weeks as that progresses down the uh, down the old viewing chain. And we have three spooky stories this week. We've got Telltale Heart and the Raven from Edgar Allan Poe, and then The Monkey's Paw by W.W. Jacobs to get the the month of October off to a nice spooky start. I hope everybody's doing well out there. Last week was an absolute clusterfuck of a week for me, just so much shit going on. Um, I'm very much hopeful that this week is uh, is a lot more relaxed. Um, It's Sunday as of recording this, and I had a wonderful day of football and uh, ramen and warm drinks. It was a pretty chilly day. And uh, I also deep cleaned my apartment. So I'm feeling pretty good. Like, we got fresh sheets on the bed, and everything's been vacuumed and dusted. It's it's lovely. It's nice. Um, it's important to take care of your environment, because in doing so, you take care of yourself. On the inside, where the feelings are. That's what matters the most. Hope you're all doing well. Um, yeah. It's, uh, it's gonna be good. Enough of me prattling on. Let's get into some stuff. It'll be going up, guys. The classic, the ever-beloved story of The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe, published in 1843. Okay. This one's a a pretty short one um, in terms of all sorts of stuff, but uh, I am once again just going to try to do my my dramatic reading thing. True. Nervous. Very, very dreadfully nervous. I had been and am... But why will ye say that I am mad? The disease has sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken, and observe how healthily, how calmly, I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived it haunted me day and night. Object, there was none. Passion, there was none. I loved that old man. He never wronged me. He had never given me insult for his gold I had no desire. I think it was his eyes. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture, a pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold, and by so degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man, and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now this is the point. You fancy me mad, madmen know nothing. But you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded. With what caution, with what foresight, with what dissim- dissimulation, sure, I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. And every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it, oh so gently. And then when I made an opening sufficient for my head, I put on a dark lantern, all closed, closed, so that no light shone out. Then I thrust my head in. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. 
took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. <laughs> Would a madman have been so wise as this? Then, when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously. Oh, so cautiously. Cautiously, for the hinges creaked. I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. And this I did for seven long nights. Every night, just at midnight, but I found the eye always closed. So it was impossible to do the work, for it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning when the day broke, I went boldly into his chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone, inquiring how he had passed, how he has passed the night. So, you see, he would have been a very profound old man indeed to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked in upon him while he slept. Until the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. Watch Minute's hand moves more quickly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers, of my sagacity. Sure, that works for me. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph. To think that there I was, opening the door little by little, and he not even to dream my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly as if startled. Now you may think I drew back, but no, his room was as black as pitch with the thick darkness, for the shutters were closed fastened for fear of robbers. And so I knew that he could not see the opening door, and I kept pushing it on steadily. Steadily. I had in my head, and was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening, and the old man sprang up in bed, crying out, Who's there? I kept quite still and said nothing. For a whole hour I did not move a muscle. In the meantime, I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in bed listening, just as I have done night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently, I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief, oh no. It was the low, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well, many a night, just at midnight, when all the words slept it that welled within my own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo, and the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt and pitied him, although I chuckled at heart. I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise when he had turned in the bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, It's nothing but the wind in the chimney. It's only a mouse crossing the floor. Or, it's, it is a, merely a cricket, which has made a slight chirp. Yes, he had been trying. Oh, God. Jesus. Fucking, who's, who's talking to me on Steam? That scared the shit out of me. Not the time! I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna mute my computer. Eh, there we go. Okay. Jesus, fuck. All in vain because of death. And approaching him had stalked with his black shadow before him, enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel. Although he neither saw nor heard to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited for a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until, at length, a single dim ray, like the thread of a spider, shot out from the crevice and fell upon the vulture eye. It was opened wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, all a dull blue with a hideous veil. Over that chilled the very marrow in my bones. I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had the ray as if by instinct, precisely upon the damned spot. And have I not told you that 
what you mistake for madness is but over acuteness of the senses. Now I say there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury, and as the beating of the drum stimulates a soldier into courage. But even yet I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say, louder every moment. Do you mock me well? Have I told you that I am nervous? So I am. And now, at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excites me to uncontrollable terror. Yet for some minutes longer, I refrained and stood still, but the beating grew louder and louder. I thought the heart must burst. And now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open my lantern and leapt into the room. He shrieked once. Only once. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. And I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes, the heart would beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length, it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon his heart and held it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. If still you think me mad, and you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned and I worked hastily in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head, the arms, the legs. I then took up three planks of the flooring from the chamber and deposited them all between the scantlings. Then I replaced the board so cleverly, so kindly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot whatsoever. I had been too wary for that. A tub had caught it all. <laughs> when I had made an end of these labors, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart, for what had I now to fear? There entered three men who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by the neighbor during the night. Suspicion of foul play had been aroused. Information had been lodged at the police officers, police office, and they, the officers, had been deputed, deputed, departed, to search the premises. Yeah, sure. I smiled. For what I had I to fear, I bade the gentleman welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man mentioned was absent in the country. I took all. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired for them here to rest from their fatigues, while I myself, in wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them I was singularly at ease. They sat. While I answered cheerily, they chatted to familiar things. But ere long... I felt myself getting parallel and wished them gone. My head ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears. But still, they sat, and still chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued, and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definiteness. Until at length, I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently, and with a heightened voice, yet the sound increased, and what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound. Much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath. The officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased, and I arose and argued about trifles in a high key with violent gesticulations. But the noise steadily increased. Why were they not gone? 
and paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides as if excited to fury by the observations of the men, but the noise steadily increased. Oh God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore, I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated it upon the boards, but the noise rose up over all and continued to, continually increased. It grew louder and louder and louder. Still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God, no. No, they heard. They suspected. They knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought and this I think. But anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt I must scream or die and again hark louder, 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 louder. Villains! I shrieked. Disassemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here! Here! It is the beating of his hideous heart! There you go. That's a... It's the telltale heart. These things always end on like a sting, don't they? Where it's like, you know, there's more... You think there'd be more story of the officer being like, Oh, well... Right, um, we'll arrest you now. How dare you kill that old man? What was your relation to the old man? That's the thing with these stories, is that you don't really need to know, like, the grander details. It's just, um... It's just enough for you to, um... You know, get proper spooked. That's all, uh... That's all you need. That's all you need is just a good fucking spooking. That was a telltale heart. <laughs> so while it's fresh in my head, I wanted to talk really quickly about uh, Lovecraft Country on HBO. It's 11.40 at night. I just finished watching the first five episodes of Lovecraft Country. And um, if you know me, you know I'm a big fan of a Lovecraftian horror. It's the only horror, really, that I'm uh, comfortable with. I don't do well with the uh, the spooks and whatnot. And um, outside of a couple of episodes of this show, uh, at least out of the five I watched, um, where one was kind of like horror trope spooky, um, it's it's pretty. I mean, I, even that episode was was really good. Uh, the first couple of episodes really dive into um kind of the the monster side of Lovecraft and gently touch on the um the the sanity side of things uh well I say gently touch I feel like that episode really kind of shines a light on the on the sanity side of his horror um and then the follow-up episodes all deal with uh um this beautiful combination of like the continuing mystery of what's going on and like their their role in all of this um alongside like uh race relation stories and the the struggles that they go through on that side of the fence as well as dealing with loss of sanity and magic and you know cosmic horror and all that stuff and it's a it's a really nice blend um it's incredibly well acted and the characters are really compelling the sets and the settings are all really well done. I think their their grasp of Lovecraftian horror is really strong. Uh, it's it's not based on like any singular like book, so to speak, of of Lovecraft's, but it, it takes elements uh, kind of from all over. And uh, the first five minutes of episode one are incredible, um, as are the last like twenty minutes of episode one, are all really good. And it's 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 a fun ride. Um, and this is coming from somebody who just straight up doesn't really like watching horror stuff because I have a very vivid imagination and it tends to stick with me longer than it, um, than I think it should. 
for example. So, but um, since I'm very familiar with Lovecraftian horror, I think I'll I think I'll be okay on uh, on sleep tonight. We'll find out, I guess, or I'll find out, and then um, you'll know as a the 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 fucking sanity just explodes out of my brain for it. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's pretty good, and I'd recommend it if you have HBO or HBO Now or whatever the hell it is, HBO Max, I think is what it's called. If you have that, you should watch them. Um, Lovecraft Country. I would uh, I would recommend it. It seems proper spooky, and now's the now's the time for proper spooky. <laughs> I'm gonna go take a shower and go to bed. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. This story, for the longest time, I would have sworn up and down, was Edgar Allan Poe. But it's not! So here we go. The Monkey's Paw, by W.W. Jacobs. First published in uh, 1902, and then featured in a collection of stories in 1911. Anyway. uh, Begins with a quote. Be careful what you wish for, you may receive it by anonymous. Anyway, part one. Without the night, without, the night was cold and wet, but in the small parlor of Laburnum Villa, the blinds were drawn and the fire burned brightly. Father and son were at chess, the former who possessed ideas about the game involving radical chances, put his king into such sharp and unnecessary perils that it even provoked comment from the white-haired old lady knitting placidly by the fire. Hark at the wind, said Mr. White, who, having seen a fatal mistake after it was too, it was amiably desirous of preventing his son from seeing it. I'm listening, said the latter, grimly surveying the board as he stretched out his hand. Check. I should think, I should hardly think that tonight he come, but nope, just bungled all that. Let's try that again. I should hardly think that he's coming, he comes tonight, said his father with his hand poised over the board. Mate, replied the son. That's the worst of living so far out, bailed Mr. White with sudden unlooked for violence. Of all the beastly, slushy, out of the way places to live in, this is the worst. Paths a bog, the roads are torn. I don't know what people are thinking about. I suppose because only two houses in the road are let, they don't think uh, they think it doesn't matter. Never mind, dear, said his wife soonly. Perhaps you'll win the next one. Mr. White looked up sharply just in time to intercept a knowing glance between mother and son. The words died on his lips, and he hid a guilty grin in his thin gray beard. Um, there he is, said Herbert White as the gang gate banged loudly and heavy footsteps came toward the door. The old man rose with hospitable haste and opening the door uh, was heard condoling with the new arrival. The new arrival also condoled with himself so that Mrs. White said tut-tut, coughed gently at her husband, entered the room followed by a tall, burly man, uh, beady of eye and rubicund of visage. Rubicund. I don't know. I don't know what that term is. Let's Google it. Rubicund. Uh, especially of someone's face having a ruddy complexion, high-colored. Rubicant. 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 Yeah, okay. I am pronouncing this right. So, Sergeant, Sergeant Mayor Morris, he said, introducing himself. The Sergeant Major took hands and, taking the proffered seat by the fire, watched contently as his host got out whiskey and tumblers and stood a small copper kettle on the fire. At the third glass, his eyes got brighter and began to talk, the little family circle regarding with eager interest this visitor from distant parts as he squared his broad shoulders in the chair and spoke of wild scenes and doughty deeds, of wars and plagues and strange peoples. Twenty-one years of it, said Mr. White, nodding at his wife and son. Uh, when he went away, he was a slip of a youth in the warehouse. Now look at him. He don't look to have taken much harm, said Mrs. White politely. Um, I'd like to go to India myself, said the old man, just to look around a bit, you know. Better where you are, said Sergeant Major, shaking his head. He put down the empty glass and, sighing softly, shook it again. Um, 
I should like to see those old temples and fakers and jugglers, said the old man. What was that you started telling me the other day about a monkey's paw or something, Mortis? Nothing, said the soldier hastily. Leastways, nothing worth hearing. Monkey's paw, said Mrs. White curiously. Well, it's just a bit of what you might call magic, perhaps, said the sergeant major offhandedly. Three listeners leaned forward eagerly. The visitor absentmindedly put his empty glass to his lips and then set it down again. His eyes filled it for him again. To look at, said the sergeant major, fumbling in his pocket. It's just an ordinary little paw, tried as a mummy. Took something out of his paw and uh, proffered it. Mrs. White drew back with a grimace, but her son, taking it, examined it curiously. What's special about it? I inquired Mr. White, as he took it from his son, having examined it, placed it upon the table. It has a spell put it on it by an old man, said the sergeant major. A very holy man. He wanted to show that fate ruled people's lives, and that those who interfered with it did so to their sorrow. He put a spell on it so that three separate men could each have three wishes from it. His manners were so impressive that his healers were conscious that their light laughter had jarred so much. Well, why don't you have three, sir? said Herbert White cleverly. The soldier regarded him in the way that middle age is wont to regard presumptuous youth. I have, he said quietly. His blotchy face whitened. And did you really have the three wishes granted? asked Mrs. White. I did, said the sergeant major. Hold on. Ah, that's up to my throat. He tapped, and the glass tapped against his strong teeth. And anybody, um, and has anybody else wished? Persisted the old lady. First man had his three wishes, yes, was the reply. I don't know what the first two were, but the third was for death. That's how I got the paw. His tones were so grave that a hush fell on the group. If you had your three wishes, it's no good to you now then, Morse, said the old man alas. What do you keep it for? Soldier shook his head. Fancy, I suppose, he said slowly. I did have some idea of selling it, but I don't think I will. That's caused me enough mischief already. Besides, people won't buy. They think it's a fairy tale, some of them. And those who think anything of it want to try it first to pay me after. You could have no three wishes, said the old man, eyeing him keenly. Would you have them? I don't know, said the other. I don't know. He took the pie and dangled it between his forefingers and thumb and suddenly threw it upon the fire. White, with a slight cry, stooped down to snatch it off. Better let it burn, said the soldier solemnly. If you don't want it, Morris, said the other, give it to me. I won't, said his friend doggedly. I threw it on the fire. If you keep it, don't blame me for what happens. Pitch it on the fire like a sensible man. The other shook his head and examined his possession closely. How do you do it? He inquired. <sighs> Hold it up in your right hand and wish aloud, said the sergeant mayor, but I warn you of the consequences. Sounds like the Arabian Nights, said Mrs. White, as she rose and began to set supper. Don't you, uh, uh, think you might wish for four pairs of hands for me? Um, her husband drew... Don't you, don't you think you might wish for four pairs of hands for me? I mean, I suppose they'd probably just be like severed hands. This is the, this is like, maybe not the original story, obviously not because genies and wishes have been around for centuries, but this is a pretty good uh, interpretation of like when wishes go wrong and the dangers of like not framing your wishes correctly. So anyway, the husband drew the talisman from his pocket and all three burst into, uh, uh, burst into laughter at Sergeant Major with a look of alarm on his face, uh, caught him by the arm. If you must wish, he said gruffly, wish for something sensible. Mr. White dropped it back into his pocket and placing the chairs motioned his friend to the table. In the business of supper, the talisman was partially forgotten and afterward the three sat listening to an enthralled fashion to a second installment of the soldier's adventures in India. Um, so who's Herbert? I'm guessing it's the child. The tale about the monkey paw is no more truthful than those he's been telling us, said Herbert as the door closed behind their guest, just in time to catch the last train. Shan't make much of it. Um, did you give um, anything for it, father? Inquired Mrs. White regarding her husband closely. A trifle, he said, coloring slightly. He didn't want it, but I made him take it, and he pressed me again to throw it away. 
Likely. Herbert said with pretend horror. We're going to be rich and famous and happy. Wish to be an emperor father to begin with. Then you can't get henpicked. He darted around the table, pursued by the maligned Mrs. White, armed with an anti... Oh, God. Anti-Macarsar? Anti-Macarsar. Googling. A piece of cloth put over the back of a chair to protect it from grease and dirt or as an ornament. Anti-Macarsar. Anti-Macarsar. So it's that piece of fabric that just dangles on chairs. I didn't know that had a name. Well, now we do. Everybody learned a little something today. Anyway. Mr. White took the pot from his pocket and eyed it dubiously. I don't know what to wish for, and that's a fact. He said slowly. Seems to me I've got all I want. That's the good way of looking at it. The story ends here, right? If you only cleared the house, you'd be quite happy, wouldn't you? Said uh, Herbert with his hand on his shoulder. Well, wish for 200 pounds then, and that'll just do. His father, smiling shamefacedly at his own credulity, held up the talisman and his son with a solemn face, somewhat marred by a wink at his mother, and sat down and struck out a few impressive chords. I wish for 200 pounds said the old man distinctly. A fine crash from the canner greeted his words, interrupting by a shuddering cry from the old man. His wife and his son ran to him. It moved, he cried, with a glance of disgust at the object that was laying on the floor. As I wished, it twisted in my hand like a snake. Well, I don't see any money, said his son, and he picked it up and placed it on the table. And I bet I never shall. Must have been your fancy, father, asked his wife, regarding him anxiously. She just said, never mind, though, there was no harm done. Gave me a shock all the same. I thought he was just going to gain a bunch of weight. I wish to be 200 pounds. Damn it! They sat down on the fire again while the two men fished their pipes, or finished their pipes. Outside, the wind was higher than ever as an old man, um, and the old man started, uh, started nervously at the sound of a door banging upstairs. A silence unusual and depressing settled there on all three, which lasted until the old couple arose to retire for the rest of the night. I expect you'll find the cash tied up in a big bag in the middle of your bed, said Herbert as he bade them goodnight. Something horrible squatting on top of your wardrobe, watching you as your pocket of your ill-gotten gains. He sat alone in the darkness, gazing at the dying fire and seeing faces in it. The last was so horrible and so simian that he gazed at it in amazement. It got so vivid that, with a little uneasy laugh, he felt on the table for a glass containing a little water to throw over it. His hand grasped the monkey paw. With a little shiver, he wiped his hand on his coat and went up to bed. Part 2 In the brightness of the wintry sun next morning, as it streamed over the breakfast table, he laughed at his fears. There was an air of prosaic wholesomeness around the room, which it had lacked on the previous night, and the dirty, shriveled little paw was pitched on the sideboard with a carelessness which betokened no great belief in its virtues. Alright. I suppose that all old soldiers all the same, said Miss White, the idea of our listening to such a nonsense. How could wishes be granted in these days? And if they could, how could 200 pounds hurt you, father? Might drop on his head from the sky, said the frivolous Herbert. Moore said the same thing happened so naturally. Said the things happened so naturally, said his father, that, might, uh, that you might, if you so wished, attribute it to coincidence. Well, don't break into the money before I uh, come back, said Herbert as he rose from the table. I'm afraid it'll turn you into a mean, arabious man, and we shall have to disown you. His mother laughed and followed him to the door, watching him down the road, returning to the breakfast table, was very happy at the expense of her husband's credulity, all of which did not prevent her from scurrying to the door at the postman's knock, nor preventing her from referring somewhat shortly to the retired Sergeant Major's of bibulous habits when she found that the post brought a tailor's bill. Herbert will, ha um, nah. Herbert will have some more of his funny remarks, I expect, when he com comes home. She said as they sat at dinner, I dare say, said Mr. White, pouring himself out some beer. But for all that, the thing moved in my hands. That I will swear to. You thought it did, said the old lady soothingly. I said it did, replied the other man. There's no thought about it. I just... What's the matter? His wife made no reply. She was watching the mysterious movements of a man outside who, peering in at an undecided fashion at the house, appeared to be trying to make up his mind to enter. 
In mental connection, sure, yeah, with the 200 pants, she noticed that the stranger was well-dressed and wore a silk hat of glossy newness. Three times he paused at the gate, then walked on again. The fourth time he stood with the sand upon it, then with sudden resolution, flung it open and walked up the path. Mrs. White at the same moment placed her hands behind her and hurried, unfastening the string of her apron, put that useful article of apparel beneath the cushion of her chair. She brought the stranger, who seemed ill at ease, into the room. He gazed at her fervidly and listened in a preoccupied fashion, as the old lady apologized for the appearance of the room and her husband's coat, a garment which she usually reserved for the garden. Then she waited as patiently as her sex would permit for him to broach his business. Okay. But he was, at first, strangely silent. I <clears throat> was asked to call, he said at last, and stooped and picked up a piece of cotton from a treasure. I come from Ma and Megan's. The old lady started. Is anything the matter? She said breathlessly. Has anything happened to Herbert? What is it? What is it? Her husband interposed. Ah, uh, there, there, mother, he said hastily. Sit down and don't jump to conclusions. You've not brought bad news, I'm sure, I'm sure, sir. And I, the other, wistfully. I'm sorry, began the visitor. Is he hurt? Demanded the mother wildly. The visitor bowed in assent. Badly hurt, he said quietly. But he's not in any pain. Oh, thank God. The old woman said, clasping her hands. Thank God for that. Thank... She broke off at the sinister meaning of the assurance dawn on her, and she saw the awful confirmation of her fears in the other's averted face. She caught her breath, turning to her slower-witted husband, laid her trembling hand on his. There was a long silence. He was caught in the machinery, said the visitor at length in a low voice. Caught in the machinery, repeated Mr. White in a dazed fashion. Yes. He sat staring out the window, taking his wife's hand between his own and pressed it, as he had been wont to do in their old courting days nearly forty years before he was the only one left to us, he said, turning to the gently to the visitor. Is it hard? The other coughed and rising walked slowly to the window. The firm wishes me to convey their sincerest sympathy with you in your great loss, he said, without looking around. I beg that you will understand I am only here as their servant and merely obeying orders. There was no reply. The old woman's face was white, her eyes staring, her breath inaudible. On her husband's face was a look such that his friend the sergeant might have carried in his first action. I was to say that Ma and Megan's disclaim all responsibility. Ah, to continue the other. They admit no liability at all, but in consideration of your son's services, they wish to present you with a certain sum as compensation. Mr. White dropped his wife's hand and rising to his feet, gazed with a look of horror at his visitor. His dry lips shaped the words, How much? Two hundred pounds, was the answer. Unconscious for his wife's shriek, the old man smiled faintly, put out his hand to the sightless man, and dropped a senseless heap to the floor. See? That's, that's, it'll fucking get ya! You wish for 200 pounds, and boom, your son's dead. Should have phrased it as, I want 200 pounds, and I don't want my son to die in order for me to get it. You know? Gotta fucking... That's that's how it gets ya. That's how it gets ya. Every time. Part 3! In the huge new cemetery! Do you guys know the difference between a cemetery and a graveyard? Do you remember? Do you remember the difference between a cemetery and a graveyard? A cemetery does not have an attached body of worship to it. Or building a worship. I think I, say, I, think I make that mistake every time I give the definition. Anyway, um, <clears throat> anyway, some two distant, some two miles distant, there we go, the old people buried their dead and came back to the house steeped in shadows and silence. It was all over so quickly at first they could hardly realize it. It remained in a state of expectations as uh, though of something else to happen, something else which was to lighten his load, too heavy for his old hearts to bear. But the days passed and expectations gave way to resignation. The hopeless resignation of the old, sometimes miscalled apathy, sometimes they hardly exchanged a word. For now they had nothing to talk about, and their days were long to weariness. It was about a week after that the old man, waking up, uh, waking suddenly in the night, stretched out his hand and found himself alone. The room was darkness, and the sound of subdued weeping came from the window. He raised his, himself in bed and listened. 
Come back, he said tenderly. You'll be cold. It's colder for my son, said the old woman, and wept afresh. The sounds of her sob died away in his ears. The bed was warm and his eyes were heavy with sleep. He dozed fitfully and then slept until a sudden wild cry from his, wolf, uh, his wife. His wolf? His wife awoke him with a start. The paw! She cried wildly. The monkey's paw! He started up in alarm. Where? Where is it? What's the matter? She came stumbling uh, across the room to him. I want it, she said quietly. You've not destroyed it? It's in the parlor on the bracket. He replied marveling. Why? She cried and laughed together and bending over kissed his cheek. I only just thought of it, she said hysterically. Why didn't I think of it before? Why didn't you think of it? Think of what? He, que he questioned. The other two wishes, she said rapidly. We've only had one. Was not that enough? He demanded fiercely. No, she cried fervently. We have one more. Go down. Get it quick. And wish our boy alive again. The man sat in bed and flung the bedclothes from his quaking lips. Good God, you're mad. He cried aghast. Get it, she panted. Get it quick and wish. Oh, my boy, my boy. Her husband struck a match and lit a candle. Get back to bed, he said unsteadily. You don't know what you're saying. We had the first wish granted, said the old woman fiercely. Why not the second? A coincidence, stammered the old man. Go and get in and wish, cried his wife, quivering with excitement. The old man turned and regarded her. His voice shook. He has been dead ten days. Besides, he... I would not tell you else, but I could only recognize him by his clothing. If he was too terrible for you to see then, how now? Bring him back, cried the old woman, dragging him towards the door. Do you think I fear the child I have nursed? He went down to the darkness and felt his way to the parlor and then to the mantelpiece. The talisman was in its place, in a horrible fear that the unspoken wish might bring his mutilated son before him he, um, ere he could escape from the room seized up around him. And he caught his breath as he found that he had lost direction from the, of the door, his brow cold with sweat. He felt his way round the table, groped along the wall until he found himself in a small passage with the unwholesome thing in his hand. Even his wife's face seemed to change as he entered the room. It was white and expectant, and to his fear it seemed to have an unnatural look upon it. He was afraid of her. Wish! She cried in a strong voice. It's foolish and wicked! He faltered. Wish! Repeated his wife. He raised his hands. I wish my son alive again! The talisman fell to the floor and he regarded it fearfully. Then he sank trembling into a chair as the old woman with burning eyes walked to the window and raised the blind. He sat until he was chilled with the cold, glancing occasionally at the figure of the old woman peering through the window. The candle end, which had burned below the rim of the china candlestick, was throwing pulsating shadows on the ceiling and walls until with a flicker larger than the rest it expired. The old man was an with an unspeakable sense of relief at the failure of the talisman crept back into his bed and a minute after the old woman came silently and apathetically beside him. Neither spoke but sat silently listening to the ticking of the clock. A stair creaked and a squeaky mouse scurried noisily through the wall. The darkness was oppressive. After lying for some time screwing up his courage he took the box of matches and striking one went downstairs for a candle. At the foot of the stairs the match went out and he paused to strike another. And at the same moment a knock came so quietly and stealthily as to be scarcely audible sounded on the front door. The matches fell from his hand and spilled into the passage. He stood motionless, his breath suspended until the knock was repeated. Then he turned and fled swiftly back into his room and closed the door behind him. A third knock sounded throughout the house. What's that? cried the old woman, starting up. A rat! said the old man in shaking tones. A rat! It passed me on the stairs. His wife sat up listening. A loud knock resounded through the house. It's Herbert! She ran to the door, but her husband was before her, and catching her by the arm, held her tightly. What are you going to do? He whispered hoarsely. It's my boy, it's Herbert, she cried, struggling mechanically. I forgot it was two miles away. What are you holding me for? Let go, I must open the door. For God's sakes, don't let it in, cried the old man, trembling. You're afraid of your own son, she cried, struggling. Let me go. I'm coming, Herbert, I'm coming. There was another knock and another. The old woman was a sudden wrench, broke free and ran from the room. Her husband followed to the landing and called after her, appealing as she hurried downstairs. He heard the chain rattle back and the bolt draw slowly and stiffly from the socket. Then the old woman's voice, strained and panting. The bolt! 
She cried loudly, Come down, I can't reach it! But her husband was on his hands and knees groping wildly on the floor in search of the paw. If only he could find it before the thing outside got in. A perfect fusillade of knocks reverberated through the house, and he heard the scraping of a chair as his wife put down, um, put it down in the passage against the door. He heard the creaking of the bolt as it came slowly back, and at the same moment he found the monkey's paw and frantically breathed his third and last wish. The knocking ceased suddenly, although the echoes of it were still in the house. He heard the chair drawn back, and the door was opened. Cold rush, cold wind rushed up the staircase, and a long, loud wail of disappointment and misery from his wife gave him the courage to run down to her side, and then to the gate beyond. The street lamp flickering opposite shone on a quiet and deserted road. And that is the end of the story. A fucking monkey's paw. There's a I, I I love that story because when I was younger I went and saw a um like a play basically of uh, of a couple of short stories, uh, which was this one, the Telltale Heart, and the uh, Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And, uh, this one got me because, like, I remember I was, like, fucking fifth grade, like, pretty young in terms of my things. And I don't do well with scary stuff. Um, so when this scene came and the knocking of the door and she throws the door open, like, I don't remember what he, what the guy looked like all mangled from the, from the machinery because I closed my eyes because I couldn't handle it. Um, and I'm glad that it wasn't, like, horribly detailed in this because I, I probably would have, uh, would have suffered with that. But that was pretty good. That was pretty good. I liked it. Because I don't want the whole episode to just be full of spooky wookiness, um, I just wanted to real quick talk about the the latest season of the Great British Baking Show, which is on a Netflix now. So far, it's pretty good. Um, I enjoy the fact that they're basically having everybody that's involved with the show live on um, the site for like, you know, up to seven weeks. If you win the show, you're there for seven weeks, and that's um, that's certainly smart. With, with, you know, today you can't have somebody like go away and come back and risk infection. So they all have to stay there, um, which is a, which is a smart move. Um, and I, I don't want to disparage anybody's baking abilities because obviously they're somewhat competent in order to get on the show. Um, but anytime somebody says they struggle with caramel, I can't help but think like, you put sugar and water in a pot, you leave it the fuck alone it'll do its job like just don't just don't mess with it quit stirring your caramel that's what bones it up you know that kind of stuff um but then again i'm often at a loggerheads with people on televisions so yeah um i'm very much enjoying it uh i don't know who the new host is but i think they're doing a fine job part of me was like what happened to what's her face um and it occurred to me that uh, she is probably stuck in the Netherlands and couldn't make it out here for filming. So I was like, oh. So they had to find somebody else. Probably makes sense. Um, makes sense to me now that I now I think it through. But yeah, the show's, uh, show's so far so good. Um, and I appreciate the fact that it's like a full season, unlike what they did with Carmen San Diego, where they gave me five episodes. I haven't seen those episodes yet, but I'm miffed at the, how few there are. So, um, when, whenever I get to around watching that, uh, in the fucking hour and a half it'll take for me to watch them all, uh, well, I'm sure I'll talk about it more then. But Great British, so far, so good. Weekly episodes. Hell yeah. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. One of the all-time classic stories here, as, as read, well, it's not even a story, it's a poem, 
Uh, and it's a it's a pretty well known one. Um, I googled it as Nevermore because that's what the what the bird says, but that's not actually what it's called. The story is called The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe, published in 1845. <laughs> Just uh, wet my whistle here before we get started. Um, I could do the whole thing as Vincent Price. Didn't he do like a famous reading of this? Um, I think he did. Or maybe I'm thinking of Christopher Lee in that weird short story movie. Uh, that was a, that was a thing. You know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna just kind of dramatic actor it. I think. I'm just gonna do my dramatic actor thing. Because at the heart of my, of my talents, I am an actor. <clears throat> Here we go. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore. While I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as if someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. "'Tis some visitor,' I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. Only this, and nothing more. Ah, uh, distinctly, I remember it, uh, fucking dick and shittin' balls. I had it! I had it! Alright, shut up. It's fine. We're gonna keep going. Ah, uh, distinctly I remember it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow vainly I had sought to borrow from my book, Surcrease of Sorrow, Sorrow, from the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels named Lenore, nameless here forevermore. And the silken sad uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. It is this and nothing more. Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. Sir, I said, or madam, truly your forgiveness I implore, but the fact is I was napping, and so you gently... Nope. And so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door, darkness there, and nothing more. Deep into that darkness, peering long, I stood there, wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams, no more till ever dared to dream before, but the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore. This I whispered, and echo murmured back the word, Lenore. Merely this and nothing more. Back into the chamber, turning all my soul within me, burning. Soon again I heard a tapping somewhat louder than before. Surely, I said, surely, that is something out of my window lattice. Let me see, then, what thereat is. And this mystery explore, let my heart be still a moment. And this mystery explore, tis the wind and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter. When with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least absentient made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with mine of lord or lady perched above my chamber door, perched upon a bust of palace, just above my chamber door, perched and sat and nothing more than this ebon bird, beguiling my sad fancy into smiling by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it's wore. Though thy crest be shorn and shaven thou, I said, art sure no craven, ghastly grim and ancient raven wandering from the nightly shore. Tell me, what thy lordly name is on the night's Plutonian shore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Much I marveled, this ungainly fowl, to hear discourse so plainly, 
though its answer little meaning, little reverence bore. For we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast upon the sculpted bust above his chamber door with such a name as nevermore. But the raven sitting lonely on the placid bust spoke only that one word, as if his soul in that one word did he outpour. Nothing further did he utter, not a feather, then he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered. Other friends have flown before, on the morrow he will leave me as my hopes have flown before, then the bird said nevermore. See, I told you, I, I told you I'd get it back. I lost it there in the beginning, but I, we found it, it's fine. We're, we've got it in our inner grasp. Startled at the stillness broken by the reply so aptly spoken, doubtless, I said, what it utters is its only shock and store. Caught from some unhappy master whom unmerciful disaster followed fast and followed faster till his songs one burden bore, till the dirges of his hope, that melancholy, melancholy, cool, good job, melancholy, melancholy, not a word, melancholy burden bore of never, nevermore. But the raven, still beguiling all my fancy into smiling, straightened, I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of the bird and bust and door. Then upon the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking. Fancy until fancy, thinking what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore met in croaking nevermore. This is that engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining with my head at ease reclining on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamp lit gloated over. But who's a velvet, uh, velvet violet lining with the lamp lights gloating over? She shall press nevermore. Then methought the air grew denser, perfume from an unseen censer, swung by seraphim whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch! I cried, thy god hath lent thee by the angels, he hath sent thee respite, respite, and nepothin from thy memories of Lenoa. Quaff, oh, quaff this kind of nepothin, and forgot this lost Lenora, quoth the raven nevermore. Prophet, I said, thing of evil, prophet still of bird or devil, whether tempter sent, or whether tempest tossed thee here or shore, desolate yet un all undaunted on this desert land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted, tell me truly, I implore, is there, is there a balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore, quoth the raven nevermore. Prophet, I said, thing of evil, prophet still of bird or devil, by that heaven that bends us, bends above us, by the God that we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden, if within the distant Adian, it shall clasp a sainted maiden, whose the angels named Lenore, clasp a rare and radiant maiden, from whom the angels name Lenore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Be that word our sign in parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked upstarting, get thee back into the tempest and the night's Plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul hath spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak out from my heart, and take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door. His eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming. And the lamplight over him streaming throws a shadow on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. I suppose that wasn't all that creepy. Um, it's a good poem. You like, I love the fact that it fucking rhymes. I've read so many fucking shitty in-book poetry lately. None of it fucking rhymes. Poe at least took the time to make his shit rhyme and have like fucking rhythm to it. Which is fucking nice to see. So, good job. 
I also, as I was reading this, I remember that on one of the early Treehouse of Horrors, The Simpsons did, uh, like Homer, they just do this verbatim, and it's Homer, and I and I think that's I think that's great. So, um, yeah, that was a uh, that was the Raven. That was pretty good. I liked it. Thank you all very much for listening to this week's episode of the Going Up Cast. I hope you enjoyed our our first three spooky stories. Uh, obviously, there'll be more. Um, I'm I'm trying to like play around with um with different authors each week. Uh, for this week, we had two. We did we did Edgar Allan Poe and uh, W. W. Jacobs. Um, next week, I'm not sure who we're going to read from. Um, I'm trying not to like dedicate the month to to like one person or or another. Uh, so. I'm pretty sure we're we're done with Poe, unless there's something that like speaks to me, you know. Um, but I, I I know we're definitely gonna touch on some Lovecraft here pretty soon. Uh, I think I might dip into like some fucking ghost stories. Maybe we can get a couple of those. Um, maybe some modern ghost stories. Maybe I could read some like some uh, some creepy pastas or something like that. That might be fun. Uh, but for right now, we're just gonna we're gonna play around with the with the spooky format as the month gets uh gets on in a you know gets on and on and uh we'll see where it goes thank you all very much for listening i hope you're all staying safe out there wear the masks wash the hands and i'll see you all next week have a good one guys